Good morning. If you'll open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11, we'll spend most of our time in verses 1 through 7. But as we read through it, I want to skip back and pick up a few verses that we covered uh, from last week's passage. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 10, verse 35, and we'll read all the way through Hebrews 11, verse 7. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Pray with me. Lord, this this morning, we, we, your disciples, come to you and we confess our smallness of faith. And so this morning, I just want to, for my own heart, pray the words of Scripture. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Today, Father, would you grant us faith by the hearing of your word that we would live as, as those that you have considered faithful. And we pray all this through the name of the faithful one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So in one of the 007 James Bond films, uh, there's this scene where Bond gets poisoned. Uh, Not that I'm endorsing all Bond films, by the way, but uh, I was originally supposed to preach last week when we made the schedule, but since Jake Mason was kind enough to switch with me, I just felt sort of this moral obligation and compulsion to start with a movie reference. I don't know what's up with that, so um, I'm going to go with that. And in this scene, uh, Bond is sitting at this poker table, and he begins to realize that he's been poisoned, that something's wrong. So he folds his cards Uh, He walks out and grabs a salt shaker and a cup on the way out and goes to the bathroom to try to divulge himself of all the poison he's ingested. Well, so that doesn't work. And so he stumbles out of of the building, crosses the street with oncoming traffic, works his way over to his super nice Aston Martin sports car to call British headquarters. And he gets on the phone with British intelligence and they tell him that his heart is going to stop. And so over the phone, they're going to walk him through the process of using a defibrillator on himself 
which of course he has in the glove box of the Aston Martin. Where else, I mean, that's where I keep my defibrillator. I don't know where you keep yours. But uh, so Bond grabs the defib, you know, out of the glove box, puts it in his lap, uh, charges it up, sticks the little things to his chest. And just as his heart is about to stop, they tell him, now Bond, now push the button. So he pushes the button and click, (laughs) nothing happens. So he pushes it again, you know, click, 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 click. And he looks down, and in his disoriented state, he forgot to attach the wire from the defib to the leads on his chest. And so he passes out. And to find out whether or not Bond lives or dies, I guess you'll have to see the movie. Um, I'm just kidding. Bond, he never dies. If he did, how, how are you going to make money off of the 007 franchise without 007? But for a second, it seems like he's done for. All because he forgot to attach this little thing that's a really big deal to to the source of power. So hang with me for just one second to see where we're going with this. So, uh, so far, the book of Hebrews has been making argument after argument after argument that Jesus is greater. Greater than anything, greater than anyone. He's the only true source of life, the only means to a relationship with God the Father. And so we've seen as we walk through the book in in chapter 1 that Jesus is the true revelation of God and that as God's own son, he shows us what God is really like and he's superior to any angel or prophet or religious leader that would come before or after him. And then as we moved into chapter 2, we saw that Jesus is the true deliverer, that he saves his people from bondage to evil and death, far superior to the Old Testament leader Moses. And then as we moved in chapters 3 and 4, we saw that Jesus is the true captain of salvation, leading his people into rest for their souls in a way that Joshua, the Old Testament general, never could have. And then as we moved into chapters 5 and onward, we saw that Jesus is the true high priest. He stands before the presence of God on our behalf and even sympathizes with our hurt and our pain like no ancient high priest ever could have. And then uh, moving on from chapters um, 8, 9, and 4 all the way to 10, we saw that Jesus is the true sacrifice for sin, shedding his perfect blood far better and far more sufficient than any animal sacrifice could ever be. But here's the catch. Someone can tell you that, and someone can preach that to you for months on end until you are blue in the face. But if you don't grasp that, if you don't cling to it, if you don't embrace it, if you don't attach to it by faith, then it's really of no good to you. You can have the very thing that would save your life sitting there right in your lap, all charged and ready to go. And yet without attaching to it by faith, you are as good as dead. And sadly, this was the case for most of the Old Testament Israelites. And the author mentioned this problem back in Hebrews chapter 4. Let's look at it briefly. Hebrews 4 verse 2, he says, For the good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And moving on to chapter 11, these first readers, they seem to be in danger of leaving Christ and returning to a Messiah-less Judaism in the face of, of their persecution. And so they need to endure. They need to continue. They need to hold fast. But how? How are they going to do that? What's going to give them the the strength to endure? 
Well, they need to attach all that they know and have learned about Jesus and how great he is to their own chest in order for them to continue on as faithful Christians. And for, for us too, you know, we've been setting the table or charging the defibrillator or whatever you like all year long with truth upon truth about the person of Jesus. And yet, as I, as I studied this passage for this week, you know, I just had to be honest with myself and ask, you know, is Jesus really becoming greater and greater to me? Is he becoming more lovely to me? Do I consider him as more worthy in my life of my time and my worship and my affections? So what about, what about for you? I mean, we've been at this since January, right? We've been at this book since January, piling on the truth about the greatness of Jesus. And yet, if for you, you are finding that, you know, <laughs> I still don't know that I really love him that much more than I did in January, then we have need today of one thing, faith. And so let me make the understatement of a lifetime <laughs> that faith, even though it's a really small thing, is a really big deal. And some of you, you may not even be sure if you have faith or not. You're not really sure what it means to have faith. And then for some of you, you, you think that you do, but you know that your faith is, is weak, it's wobbly, and it needs to be strengthened. And then for some of you, you may think that you have faith, but you've never really understood, you've misunderstood what it even means to, to have faith. Well, enter Hebrews chapter 11. This passage helps us see in such a clear way what real faith is and how it works out in real life. We're given both explanations of faith and examples of faith so that we can walk away understanding what faith is, how it works, and how it works out in real life. So let's walk through the first seven verses of Hebrews chapter 11. And today, just let it correct and in, in, enhance your understanding of faith and let it inspire you as you see faith in action in the lives of some very normal, deeply flawed, yet remarkable people uh, from the Old Testament. So uh, with that in mind, uh, the first thing I'd want us to see about faith from this chapter is that contrary to modern conception, faith is not a blind or irrational belief, but it's a conviction that allows you to hold on to what you already know to be true, even in the face of pressure and doubt. So it's, it's a thing that allows you to hang on to what you've already decided to be true, even in the face of pressure and doubt. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now I'm afraid when we read this, we sometimes hear or at least feel, maybe subconsciously, that, well, faith is being sure about things that I really can't be very sure about at all. And maybe we sort of equate things not seen with things not real. Or things hoped for with things that just kind of sounds to us like, well, things that I kind of hope will happen, but you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But this is not at all what the verse is saying about faith. The things hoped for and the things not seen are referring to things that God has already revealed and promised to his people through his word. 
So what it is saying is that faith is the thing that allows you to be certain of and hold on to things that you've already, by virtue of reason and evidence and all that good stuff, decided to be true. The recipients of this letter had good reason, had good evidence to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and so do we. But their fight for faith was not a fight against reason, but against their circumstances that had changed to where they were now afraid to be Christians. Visible pressure, persecution had them thinking twice about whether this whole Jesus thing was a good idea. And if you're honest with yourself, and I'm honest with myself, I think often the emotional and experiential trials of life, those are the things that sometimes cause us to question whether or not the things that we believe in and have reason to think are actually true in the face of all the difficulty right in front of us. But this passage is certainly not saying that faith is brainless, but rather it's saying that faith is tenacious and that it holds on to things already known to be true. Uh, some of you may have noticed, if you know me, that I, I have a scar on the back of my head right here. I have like a, a nice size scar right there. And there have been several accounts of how this scar got there. Uh, maybe it was the implantation of a mind control device by the government, or I survived a fatal wound to the head as a young boy due to my latent superpowers. And to be fair, I mean, most of these accounts have been perpetuated by me to my youth when they ask about where I got the scar. So I will set the record straight today and tell you where I actually got the scar from. So when I was about 10 years old, I had a, a mole birthmark thing there and that, that my doctor, dad, thought that it needed to be removed, giving its coloring and its size and my family's history of skin cancer. So I know that my dad is a good dad and that he's a good doctor, which helps. And he told me, you know, the procedure won't last that long. And this is the safest thing for me to do. So my reason tells me that I should have faith in him. And I did. But when I actually got to the operating room and laid down on the table and saw the instruments that he's going to use to cut into my head and the scalpel, and when I felt the injections of lidocaine go into my scalp, and when I smelled the cauterization after he finishes up, I'm thinking, okay, everything I you know, knew to be true before, I am now questioning. Uh, like, is this pain I'm experiencing really worth it? Maybe skin cancer is not that big a deal. You know, maybe we could just amputate my head, and this would all be over a lot sooner. But um, my, my battle in that moment was not faith versus reason. My battle was faith versus fear of my present troubles. And what enabled me to stay on the table and hang on to it and grip my teeth was my trust in my dad that he was good and that he knew what he was doing. And that's how I actually got this scar. So if you see it, I hope it reminds you of faith. <laughs> see, uh, faith enables us to say, yes, following Jesus is worth it. Because we perceive that there's more to the story than just what we see and what we feel in the given moment. Faith is the thing that enables you to live as a Christian with grit and with confidence and with boldness and joy because you remain sure of the things that have been promised even though you don't currently see. 
Now, some of your translations render this verse a bit differently. So if you have your Bibles and you're reading along and you notice some of the words are significantly different there, it's a good thing to have your Bibles out during sermons and be checking for that sort of stuff. Some translations will render this, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Others will have something like, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of things not seen. So which is it? Is faith assurance of things hoped for, like conviction that I feel, or is it somehow substance and is faith somehow evidence or reality of what I see? There's a lot of merit to translating this verse verse both ways, and the original words allow for that sort of range and flexibility of meaning. And so I think to put them together, you might say it this way. Faith grants us such assurance and conviction of the things that we hope for in such a way that we can even perceive and enjoy and experience the substance of those things now. That faith takes the things far off and makes them a present reality. Uh, Think of it this way. I went to California this month uh, with Ashley and her family for her sister's wedding, and we were staying near, near the ocean there. And we flew in at night, so I couldn't see the ocean. But as we were driving to the house where we were staying... I could smell the salt from the ocean as the breeze blew into our car. I couldn't see it yet, and I couldn't hear it, but I could perceive it. And my perception of that unseen reality was such that it brought the ocean, which I couldn't touch or swim in, into my very reality in the present. You know the saying, right? We were so close, I could almost taste it. And faith is a lot like that, in that It's a conviction of the things that God has said are true, even though we aren't experiencing them yet fully. How do I know the ocean is there? Well, I smell it, I taste it, I perceive it, and that in and of itself is evidence for the ocean. Similarly, faith isn't just a gut feeling that you feel like one day I will live with God like I would one day get into the ocean, but Faith latches onto and perceives and even tastes and enjoys that future reality right now. So that's essentially what faith is. It's a present assurance that God is true and he will come through on his promises even if we can't see them now. And this has really massive implications for the lives of people. So look with me at verse two. It says, for by it, by faith, The people of old received their commendation from God. So this is a major statement. I mean, you're, you're telling me that the people of the Old Testament were never saved by their morality or by following the sacrificial system to a T or by their law keeping or any of that? No, they're not. And if you think in context of this original letter, this is an extremely powerful argument to these first hearers. Remember, they are tempted to turn away from Jesus as the Messiah and go back to Judaism. So the author is saying, don't you understand that even your own heroes of your own religion were only ever saved by faith in the promises of God? It's not their bloodlines or their sacrifices or their law keeping. So do you want to stand in line with these heroes? then take up faith. So, starting at the very beginning of the Old Testament, starting with Genesis 1-1, our author is going is to walk through the narrative of the Hebrew Bible. And we'll take two or three weeks to cover this. And he's going to show how it has always been, relationship with God has always been 
all about faith. And he starts like this in verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And here we actually have another misunderstanding of faith kind of unearthed for us. And that is faith is not um, sort of blind optimism or just positive thinking. Faith has a particular object and a focus. I mean, you hear people say things like, you just got to have faith, which they really mean, you know, if you just kind of believe that things will turn out right or if you really believe that you can hit that fastball, then you will. But biblical faith is not that at all. Biblical faith is calculated trust in particular things revealed by God. And let me show you what I mean. To, to kick off this long list of by faith examples, why does the author start with, we understand, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God? Well, quite simply, I think he's trying to help his hearers realize that they already live in large degree by faith. That their fundamental belief about where the world came from is something they take on faith in God's revealed word. I mean, it's not like there was any YouTube back then or anyone to video the beginning of the world. You might be able to figure out by looking at the world that it needs a creator, that it needs a designer, but to know that he spoke it into existence, to know why he did it, to know that he created it with, with beauty and kindness and joy and love all wrapped in it, you could never know that on your own. It's something that you must take on trust in the revealed word of God. So he's trying to help them understand that they already believe in the invisible, namely that God's word started everything at the beginning. So it shouldn't be too much of a stretch to think that, okay, if God, by his word, can create everything that you see, then you can bank on his promises when he says that he'll give you everything you need. If his word can hold the heavens together, then it should be sufficient for our faith. So faith has as its particular object the words and promises of God. It's not being in the optimist club of America, which I believe there is one. And so after laying a foundation of trust in the word of God to bring about visible things, he moves on to real life examples of real people who had real faith. And he encourages us by doing this to imitate not their whole life, not everything they did, because if you did that, you'd find yourself in a heap of trouble. But he's encouraging us to imitate their faith. And this is how we all learn best, right? By imitation. That's how you learn to talk and to speak and to interact. My little son, Grayson, he's a year old and he's learning how to say things. First words, dada, cha-ching, right? And now we're working on animal sounds. He's got down like horse, dog, cow, monkey. His new favorite is lion. He likes to growl at us at the dinner table, which I think is awesome. He gets his plate of food and he's like, rawr, you know, and Ashley tells me it's time to move on and not just do animal noises. He may think that he is an animal. Anyway, uh, imitation is what we were talking about. Imitation. Uh, look at verse 4. We're encouraged to imitate their, their faith. So, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him. So, how do we know God commended him? By accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And another great misconception of faith is exposed here. Faith is not the same thing as religious activity. 
You can be deeply and even rabidly religious and still be lacking faith. Faith that brings God's approval, his commendation, means you approach him on his terms and in the way that he has provided. So in the story of Cain and Abel, if, if you know it, you know that they were the sons of Adam and Eve, our first parents. And so Cain, the older son, he's a worker of the soil. He's a farmer. That's what he does around the house. And Abel was a herdsman. He's a shepherd. Now, when Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God in worship, God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And so Cain, out of spiritual jealousy, kills his own brother, which is an amazing thing to me to to realize that spiritual pride and spiritual jealousy caused the first murder, and that from from a brother. But of course, the, the big question in the story is, why didn't God have regard for Cain's offering? You know, was it because he brought kale salad instead of lamb chops to the offering table? Or was it just because he had a sour attitude about the whole thing? Well, in our passage, it makes clear that Abel's faith is what motivated and empowered him to bring the right kind of offering, the better offering. It seems like Abel's bringing a blood sacrifice showed that he had faith in a substitute needed in order to pay for the death that he deserved, as he had already seen in the case with his parents, Adam and Eve. When, who they, sinned and when they sinned and were expelled from the garden, God slays an animal and covers it with its skin to, to, to clothe their nakedness and their shame. But Cain, however, he brings the fruit of his hard labor. He brings a sacrifice that he sweated for. And so Cain represents to us all who come to God bringing their own labors, somehow hoping that their toil will win God's approval. And then Abel, on the other hand, represents those who don't just do religious things, but they realize that their moral toil would be totally insufficient and that they need a substitute bloody sacrifice in their place. And so they cling to it, or should I say cling to him in faith. Faith and religious activity are very, very different things. One brings God's commendation and the other brings God's condemnation. But wait a second, you say, as as you read the story of Abel. How is Abel a good example to these people of faith? I thought he was trying to talk them into sticking with the whole Christian thing, even though it was hard and their lives were in danger. Why does he give Abel as an example? He, He gets... He gets smashed for this. He gets killed. And, and yes, he does, which I guess kind of knocks out one of the other popular misconceptions of faith, which is that if I just have faith, everything will be fine. Well, tell that to Abel. But the author follows up Abel's death with these words. Because of his faith or by his faith, through his faith, Abel is still speaking. You know, and the hard reality for the Hebrew audience, and really for most Christians over most ages past, they faced the same prospect that Abel did. Violence at the hands of their own brothers and friends because of their faith. So our author reminds us that even death cannot silence faith. And God honors those who die for their faith. And because of his faith, Abel's voice is still heard. We hear it today. And um, I'm not sure about this, but perhaps to give contrast to the way Abel's life ends up, the author next moves on to Enoch, who doesn't die at all. He skips death, so that's nice. So the life of Enoch teaches us 
another really valuable lesson about faith, though, and that's this. Faith is never merely doctrinal. Certainly it is that, but it is also fundamentally personal and relational. Personal and relational, faith is. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the account of the life of Enoch, which you get in Genesis chapter 5, if you want to read the whole thing, it's extremely brief, but it is fascinating. And his story pops up in the middle of all those genealogies at the beginning of of Genesis when it's like, and then so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and they fathered so-and-so, and and they lived such and such a number of years, and then they died. And then his son so-and-so lived so-so in many years, and then he fathered so-and-so, and and after such and such many of years, he died. And as you're kind of dozing off in the middle of reading those, you come across Enoch, where it says... Enoch walked with God, and then he was not found, for God took him, which is pretty awesome, and a great thing to be remembered for, that he walked with God. Most people don't get those types of comments in the genealogies, but Enoch does, that he walked with God. But, you know, what does that mean for Enoch to to walk with God? You know, is God just chilling at his tent when he got home with his Fitbit? Like, let's go, Enoch, we got to get these steps in, bro. You know, or I'm not sure, maybe, maybe it was, you know, real tangible like that. But Hebrews helps us understand that walking with God simply means living a life that is pleasing to him, a life of faith. And I really like the way Bishop J.C. Ryle put it. He said, in walking with God, A man will go just as far as he believes and no further. His life will always be proportioned to his faith. His peace, his patience, his courage, his zeal, his works, all will be according to his faith. And then verse 6 expands on what we're trying to say here. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I'll never forget a, a conversation that I had with a former student of mine. Um, before we moved up here, I was a high school teacher at a Christian school in Charleston, South Carolina. And one of my students was a girl who was, she was really one of the brightest and most inquisitive students at our, at our school. But she was deeply skeptical of Christianity and highly resistant to the idea of of having any sort of relationship with God. And I remember talking to her one day after class about this. We had a lot of conversations back and forth, which were really, really fascinating conversations. But uh, this one particular day, uh, she begins to speak, and tears just begin to well up in her eyes. And, And holding back these tears, she said this. She said, I just don't understand why I'm supposed to believe in God. I mean, if he's really there, I just think he'll judge me based on what kind of person I am and the actions I've taken, not on what I believed about him. And I think the tears that she was holding back really said a lot. And Hebrews would make sense of why she was upset because deep down she knew that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and must believe that he rewards those who seek him. We know this deep down and and this really knocks the wind out of the sails of the hope against hope of many agnostics and maybe many church going folk 
who would spend most of their lives really never pursuing God seriously, but just hoping that in the end he'll judge them based on how generally ethical they've been. But no, real faith must go beyond doctrine and it must be personal and relational. And I know that, you know, this description here of like, okay, uh, whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Kind of seems like, duh, you know, and, and a little basic. But there's more going on here in this verse than just generic theism. Underlying these two statements are two great realities about God. That if you are going to draw near to him, you must have your hands around these. So first, when it says we must believe that he exists, the original, uh, the, the more literal way to translate this would simply be, must believe that he is. Hearkening back to when God revealed himself to Moses as, I am who I am. That this is the God of the Bible that we're talking about here and that he has always existed. He absolutely is. He'd pop into existence. He's not changing or evolving or becoming. He simply is. And he's sovereign. He's uncreated. And he is there. And then the second thing, and a, a more literal translation I think is actually helpful here too, it's, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So meaning that God's not just eternally existent, always been there, but that he's essentially good, that he is a rewarder. And I like the, the literal rendering because it's not just saying that God rewards those who seek him, something he does, but that he is a rewarder. It's something that he is. He loves to give. He loves to bless. He loves to reward any who would earnestly come to him with his own life and love and presence. And if you don't believe that about him, then you'll feel like you're seeking after him is a complete waste of your time. But it's not a waste because God is a rewarder. It's who he is and not just something that he does. So when you go to open your Bible and you feel like you're just not getting anything out of it, hang with it because God's a rewarder of those who seek him. When you go to pray and you feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, don't give up. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. When you don't sense the presence of God, he is still there and he is still a rewarder deep down in his very own nature. That's just who he is. So don't stop seeking him. Real faith seeks God and it walks with God because God is real and because God is good. He is pleased with that kind of faith. Now, there's a pitfall that you may have to avoid here when thinking about faith as deeply personal and relational. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that just because it's personal and relational, that it's somehow only private. Okay, this is one of the great misconceptions of faith in our age, that faith is just kind of this thing that I have between me and God. Each person has their own version of faith, and that's okay. And what I believe doesn't really have to come out in the public sphere or in my public life. No way. Because faith is a believing response to what God has said. It can't help but have public implications. And let's ask, the, let's ask Noah about this. The life and faith of Noah is the perfect example for this, this truth that faith must be public. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, 
he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You know, if Noah actually believed that God was going to wipe out all the wickedness on earth with a flood, he would have no choice but to go public with his faith. I mean, just think about how ridiculous it would seem if he hears this this message from God and then doesn't actually do anything. He doesn't build the ark. You know, he'd just be chilling under a palm tree and people walk by like, hey, "Hey, I heard from God. He's going to destroy the whole world with this enormous, gigantic flood. And they would say, okay, so now that you have that information, do you plan to do anything with it? You know, you at least think that you would take a vacation to the mountains for a while and see what's going to happen. You know, it it would just look really silly. No ark, no faith. And it does look silly. I mean, it does look silly when we say that we believe that salvation is found only in Christ alone, and yet we're unwilling to take the risk of sharing that with our neighbors and friends and family. I mean, it looks silly when we say we believe that God's word gives us good instruction for how to live our lives, and yet we're willing to commit adultery or fraud. I mean, it looks really silly when we say we believe in an eternal home in heaven, and yet we live with all our efforts and resources and focus and attention on things believing like like maybe retirement is heaven. Faith, true faith, cannot be restricted to the private. True faith This is what it does. It enables confident, bold, joy-filled obedience and action for God because we believe him concerning events as yet unseen. And and this is where, in in studying this passage for preparation for today, I, I was just floored by my deep need for my faith to be strengthened. Um, I mean, I I believe the Bible and I believe in scripture and the promises of God but and there are a lot of days where I live as a Christian with not a whole lot of confidence or boldness or joy instead I find myself timid and and unsure afraid to take risk or even speak up and and hesitant to live like this book is is actually true and I mean just just for example I I love my work here I love ministering to our students and and teaching them the scriptures and sharing the gospel with them. But if I'm honest with you, there are days where I question myself and say, what am I doing with my life? Like, this is hard. And when I think about doing this sort of thing for the next 30 or 40 years, God willing, I, I just wonder whether or not the, the necessary sacrifices that ministry takes, the sacrifice of time and money and stability and emotional energy that come along with that. And, and I question, is, is, that, is that really worth it? Is it worth sacrificing that of my family, their well-being and stability for the sake of the gospel? And faith would say, yes. Yes, it is 100% worth those risks because there really is coming it. There really is coming a day where every eye and heart will see the Lord. And on that day, I will know that my efforts for him were not in vain. And this is not about whether you pursue vocational ministry or not. This is the life of a Christian, that it is not easy, that it requires sacrifice and faith is what enables you to hang in there and to believe in an unseen reality promised by
by God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, if I really believe that God is there, and if I really believe that I'm loved by him and that he's bringing a kingdom that's gonna pale everything in this life that I've seen and that he cares about the actions that I take and that he loves to give himself to me as I seek after him, if I really believe that, how would it change the way that I live? Or it could be helpful to ask yourself this question, if I didn't believe any of that, would the way that I live change at all, much? See, this is what faith enables us to do. It enables us to live for more than just what's right in front of us right now. So faith enables struggling husbands and wives to hold fast to their marriage covenants, even when the pressure to bolt is really strong. And faith enables men and women to remain content to be unmarried rather than marry someone who does not love Jesus. And faith enables a a young man or woman to maintain sexual purity, even when easy opportunities and cultural pressures or even struggles with same-sex attraction would say, just go with it. Faith enables them to say no and to look at Christ to say, I am more than my desires. I am more than what I see and feel right now. I belong heart, soul, body to my father. Faith enables you to spend your money differently. Instead of gratifying every material desire that you have, we can spend it on things that promote God's kingdom and bring relief to the needy. Faith enables us to speak up to friends and family about Jesus, knowing that he's the one way of deliverance from God's judgment. Faith enables us to send off our dearest friends and family overseas for the sake of the gospel, knowing that goodbye is really never goodbye for the children of the kingdom. And faith enables us to say goodbye to our loved ones when they pass from the earth, knowing that there is hope beyond our grief. And most importantly, faith enables us to become, like Noah, heirs of righteousness. Not earners of righteousness, but heirs Sons and daughters of God who no longer have to try to earn his approval, but receive it because of what Christ has done by faith. You see, faith cannot be and never is a private event. At the bottom of it, there is nothing more practical, more life-changing, more rubber meets the road than faith. Because the more certain you are of the reality of God and the coming of his kingdom the more you'll be able to live and act in joyful confidence for his sake. And the truth is, I I need more of that. I need greater confidence in Jesus and in his promises if I'm going to endure as a Christian for the remainder of my days here. And so I, I am thankful for the book of Hebrews, how it cuts open my need for faith And reminds me as we move to chapter 12 over the next two weeks that it doesn't all hang on me because Jesus is the author and the perfecter, the finisher of my weak and fragile faith. And there's a lyric in a new Matthew West song that's been on the radio. Christian radio loves Matthew West, I tell you what. And I heard it like four times yesterday. Uh, But I I like this verse. It says, the pages of history... They tell me it's true. It's never the perfect. It's always the ones with scars that you use. It's the rebels and prodigals. It's the humble and the weak. The misfit heroes you chose tell me hope. There's hope for sinners like me. So for my Christian brothers and sisters here, 
come to the table in faith today. And as you taste the bread and drink the cup, embrace Christ afresh with faith that he has given his own body and blood so that you can draw near. And come to the table in faith as you taste the bread and the cup, knowing that we will one day dine with him in his heavenly kingdom when he returns. These are the things hoped for. These are the things not seen. But faith brings them close to you today so that you can taste it. So taste and eat in faith. And for my friends here today who, if you're just really not sure where you stand with faith, if, if you sense God stirring up faith within you today, I'd like to invite you to respond to that and to exercise the faith that God is stirring up. And so feel free to speak with me or any of our pastors um, after the service or even during this time of communion. And perhaps for the first time today, you can draw near to God because you believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek after him. And that like Noah, you too can become an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. And that like these people of old, you can receive God's approval, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done and granted us and that we attach to by our faith. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the work of your word in my own heart, in my own life. It cuts me open, makes me question whether I bank my life and my hope on the promises of your word. And so, Lord, whenever you wound us with your word, you always heal us. You give us what we need. And so I pray today that by the hearing of your word, you would stir up faith within me and within us so that we would be a church that lives with joyful and bold confidence for the sake of your kingdom, that we would not be ashamed to live in faith and to speak in faith. Thank you for who you are, that you have always been, and that you reward us as we seek you. And we pray all this through the matchless name of Christ, by faith, amen.